0: This hymn, which is drawn from Psalm 72, um, touches on God's sovereignty, and that sovereignty is also reflected in our first reading of this evening, which comes to us from Psalm 47. Psalm 47, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. He is highly exalted, and our um, text will come also come from the psalm, which is uh, verse five. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. But um, we will also read Acts chapter one, the verses one through eleven. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth um Psalm 47 verse 5 God has gone up with a shout Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ this past weekend saw some major changes in Australian politics. We've gone from a we've gone from a liberal majority government to a labor majority government. We now have a new prime minister Anthony Albanese and a new treasurer Jim Chalmers. Some people are dismayed at these developments. Maybe you're one of them. And other people rejoice. They're expecting this government to make them glad by its rule. It's kind of ironic if you think about our society, how how much importance we attach to the outcome of these elections. If you think about how fickle political power really is. And that doesn't mean that it's irrelevant who wins the election. It is relevant. It does matter. But we should not attach a disproportionate weight to the outcome. Out of all the powers that there are, political power is the most temporary. It's the most limited. It is limited in its duration, limited in its scope, limited in its effectiveness. And yet, it is the power that certainly these last weeks our society has discussed the most. In that sense, we take the power of God less seriously. And even as Christians, we understand that the power of God will ultimately prevail, but we don't really think of that in political terms. Today's Ascension Day, we just read Psalm 47 together. Psalm 47 is a psalm which bridges that gap, it is a very political psalm, it celebrates the ascent of God to Jerusalem. From a New Testament perspective, it celebrates the ascent of Jesus to the throne of the universe. And it wants us to celebrate. Look at how many times it calls us to celebrate. It says, clap your hands, shout to God, sing praises, and so on. In other words, respond with joy. We get told seven times to give voice to our joy. So from the perspective of the psalmist, The ascension is something that is meant to be celebrated. So this evening we're going to look at Psalm 47 and how it connects to the ascension of our Lord and how we are meant to respond to that. And we'll see that it means that the Lord has gone up and therefore we are to praise him for his supremacy and praise him for his grace. Now one of the interesting things about this psalm, indeed about many of the psalms, is how regal they are. They unapologetically celebrate the imposition of God's kingdom on this world. They extol His authority. They are not politically correct in any way, shape, or form. And it's kind of refreshing, isn't it? We live in a time in which the um, the prevailing mindset is that all religions basically teach the same thing; they all have the same values they all basically tell you to be kind to other people and that's where it ends. And to that, Psalm 47 says, no, no, there is only one God. His name is Yahweh, the Lord, and he is supreme. He's always existed. He always will. He is the most high. All nations will one day bow before him whether they want to or not. And the Psalm is completely unapologetic about that. It's it's a simple statement of fact. The Lord is supreme. Psalm 47 makes that point very clearly. Look, for example, at verse 3. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. Now, bear in mind that when the psalm was first written, Israel was a theocracy. A theocracy is a nation that is governed by God through a king as an intermediary. So when it says that he subdued nations under us, um, that says more about God than it says about the nation. The point that the psalm is making is that God is stronger than any other political power. Any, uh, any other power in general, whether that be political, religious, or any other kind of power. And all of Psalm 47 proceeds on that assumption. It says that God is supreme, stronger than any idol. That's why it says in verse five, he's gone up with a shout. The shout is a shout of his worshipers. They're celebrating. And there's nothing holding him back. There are no realistic challenges to his rule. He is the king of all the earth. He is supreme. And You might wonder, well, how can the psalmist be so sure of that? Because God has shown it in history. Think back, for example, to the Exodus. God's people were slaves in Egypt. Brutally oppressed with no way to get out. And normally when people are poor and oppressed, uh, we, we would say, well, the answer for them is education. If you educate people, teach them to read and to write, teach them how to start a business, and eventually they can work their way out of their poverty. Well, Moses was one of those Israelites, and he was educated in all the ways of Egypt. But he was of no help to them on his own. He acted too soon and he had to flee. And by the time that he encounters God in the Sinai desert, he's 80. He's he's well past retirement age. He's coming to, you know, the end of his career. He's working as a shepherd for his father-in-law. And yet God changes everything. He reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush and he clearly states his intent. He says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and, listen carefully, to bring them up, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he clearly says what he's going to do. He's going to go up. He's going to take his people with him, and then he does it. Now, the Exodus was not just God delivering disadvantaged people from slavery and making them his own. It was a powerful contest between God, the true God, and the gods of Egypt. Every one of the 12 plagues pertains to an area that the gods of Egypt were supposed to control. So, for example, the Nile was worshipped as a god, and it turns to blood, and everything dies. The Egyptians worshipped a fertility goddess, In the shape of a frog. Well, the next plague was the frogs. And then he makes all the frogs die. And so on. And so all of these plagues were religious statements. They were God manifesting his supremacy. And you really find that reflected in the last plague, the death of the firstborn. Because before that plague comes, he says, On that night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt I am the Lord. So he conclusively showed his people that he is supreme. So when Psalm 47 says that he has gone up, it's looking back on that whole history, and it's saying that that in light of God's track record. When God decides to act, when God decides to go up, the gods of the nations are helpless. And you see the same thing. He brings them up to the promised land, and you see it in the conquest of Canaan. Joshua 6, the people conquer Jericho, the first real stronghold on the borders of Canaan. And what happens? They simply carry the ark around the city. The ark is a symbol of God's presence. They, They surround the city with God's presence, so to speak. And on the seventh day, they raise a shout, and then the walls cave in. Eventually, the conquest of Canaan is over. The people are established, and then through many events, the Lord brings David to the throne And when David's rule is established, he brings the ark up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on a hill, remember? 2 Samuel 6 verse 15 says that David and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Actually, 2 Samuel 6 verse 15, the last half and verse 5 of our text here are more or less identical. They both say that the Lord, or in this case the ark that represents him, went up with the sound of a trumpet. And shouts. So why do the people shout when God comes up? When he goes up? Because it means that he has come to dwell among his people. And that's the supreme example of God's power. That he works in history. That he's working towards dwelling with his people. Psalm 47 is looking back and then it looks forward and it says that God has always been going up. He's always been victorious. He's always been powerful. He is forging his way through history, forging his way through a world that has fallen into sin. And the the ascension, in a sense, is just an extension of that. All of this history is very impressive, but it's all background to the ultimate going up of Christ. Christ is God incarnate going up, not only to deliver one group of people from another, not only to ascend to the temple in Zion and lay his claim there, But this is Christ incarnate delivering his people from sin. Christ incarnate ascending to establish dominion over the universe. That's what the ascension is about. It culminates in his undisputed rule over the entire universe. And the New Testament echoes that. In places like Hebrews 1 verse 3, it says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we have Jesus sitting on the throne of the universe. And this psalm says that that rule, that power is meant to be celebrated. That's why there's so much noise going on in this psalm. Just look at all the noise in here. Clap your hands, all you people. Shout to God. Loud songs of joy, sounds of trumpets, singing praises. He's highly exalted. The power is meant to be celebrated. Psalm 47 says if you're going to worship God, you need to do it enthusiastically. It's meant to be loud. Do you remember the last time? Well, maybe some of you don't watch footy. But for those who do, we've all seen a game of footy or cricket or that kind of thing on television. And what, what happens when in footy when someone scores? You get the crowd roaring, right? It's this incredible energy. It's it's thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of people that are all shouting at the top of their lungs. Psalm 47 is telling us this is what our reaction should be to the ascension with loud enthusiasm because God has gone up. He's forged His way through history. He's our covenant God. He is supreme and He is ruling the universe. There's no power that can stand before him. And history has shown that. In principle, we believe that. But in practice, there's often a disconnect, isn't there, between what we profess and what we experience? Maybe some of you are very concerned that we now have a labor government. Maybe you we're very saddened by the latest school shooting that we read about this morning in, in America. Maybe you're concerned by things that people forward to you. Maybe we have other more personal concerns. Maybe there are issues in our family that won't go away. Maybe we suffer from persistent health problems or our loved ones are unwell or they're far from the Lord. We can have all sorts of concerns. And then you read something like this and it it can feel jarring, doesn't it? We feel out of touch with what we read in the Bible. Enthusiasm is the last thing that we feel. And it's it's not that we doubt the theology as such. We, We accept that. But it's like our present circumstances overwhelm the things that we profess. And then the question becomes, how can you see God's supremacy in the present? You're not alone if you feel that way. In later generations, God's people sometimes had the same questions. Consider these words from Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Not ascend, but that you would come down. That the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil. To make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, nor I has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. And Isaiah goes on to expand on that. But essentially he's saying, that was then. But where are you now? And we might pray the same prayer. Oh, if only you would bend the heavens and bow down. If only we could see a sign of your activity in history today. Now, we don't always make that connection between the past and the present, do we? Why is that? Why is it hard for us sometimes to to connect those dots? Well, part of it is due to the influence of the culture in which we live. We live in a culture that encourages us to be profoundly self-centered, and focused on, our, on ourselves and our own experiences. But part of it is also because we are already naturally inclined to think that way in the first place. It's, it's a natural thing to measure your life by your personal experiences. And so our text is indirectly reminding us that we need to interpret our experiences in the light of Scripture, in the light of God's self-revelation. We are called to interpret our experiences in the light of Scripture because there is no other way of getting to the bottom of what our experiences mean. Of course, people who are not believers are still able to interpret their experiences, but they miss the bigger picture that this psalm has, which provides them with perspective. And so their perspective is warped. One example of that warped perspective comes from Dr. Charles Krauthammer in a 2011 article in the Washington Post. Krauthammer wrote, if we don't get politics right, everything else risks extinction. We grow justly weary of our politics, but we must remember this. Politics, in all its grubby, grasping, corrupt, contemptible manifestations, is sovereign in human affairs Everything ultimately rests upon it. Fairly or not, politics is the driver of history. End quote. Now, clearly, this writer has lost the big picture. But we do the same thing often enough, don't we? We don't see the weaknesses in the gods of our time. Instead, we are awed or intimidated by the gods of money or power or influence or education. And yeah, then you read a psalm like Psalm 47 and it doesn't speak to us anymore. It doesn't stir us. It doesn't grab our imagination. It leaves us unmoved because we don't see the present as a continuation of the past. We don't see God's kingship in the world anymore. When we doubt God's kingship, we need to remember what the Lord Jesus said to Pilate when he was questioned. Do you remember that? He said, my kingdom is not of this world It's not a kingdom of force or military might. Instead, the rule of God is a spiritual one. It's the rule of God in the hearts of human beings. And it's far more powerful because it changes people's motivation. When people are regenerated, then their whole motivation changes. And when their motivations change, then their behavior changes as well. When people's behavior changes, then you see the effects in the world around you. And these effects are profound and they're far-reaching, but they're not always glamorous. They don't, they, they don't have that, that, that power that you see in other things in the world. The effects, however, are profound and far-reaching. They cross all geographical and cultural lines. In fact, God's reign is ultimately for all people. And we'll pay attention to that in our second point. What's really praiseworthy in this psalm is not only God's power. What is praiseworthy in this psalm is God's grace. Because he rules over a world that is broken by sin. He rules over people who by nature are sinners. And sometimes his own people are the greatest sinners of all. As he says in Isaiah 65, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, and people who provoke me to my face continually. Yet these are the people that he redeemed from Egypt. These are his people. God came to sinful people and to their children and he sets up a covenant with them. The word covenant is a name that we give to the relationship between God and his people. And that comes from him. His people did not choose him. He chose us. That's reflected in verse 4 as well. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. He set his love and his desire on his people. That came from him. Verse 4 of this psalm can refer to the pride of Jacob, but, but the name Jacob reminds us of the morally weak founding father, Of the nation. And their descendants didn't set themselves apart either. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7 says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. So, why do we have Psalm 47? Why is this all described in the way that it is? Because God keeps his word, God keeps his promises. God decides to do something and then he does it. And he does it through no merit of our own. So it's God's love and God's undeserved grace that caused him to rule over his people. Even when they rejected him, even when they were exiled, he could not bear to give them up. In Jeremiah 31 verse 20, he says, for as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. So God graciously continues to have mercy on people and to rule over people who do not deserve it. But now, if you've been thinking about this psalm, um, you may have a question. If God's people are by nature not willing to be ruled, how does this psalm actually make sense? How can they praise him? Think about it. One of the reasons why Psalm 47 is so interesting is that it assumes that the people want to be ruled. On the one hand, it says he subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. On the other hand, it says the princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham. And those two ideas seem to contradict each other. You got the people who are subdued. That would refer primarily to the wicked nations who were in the promised land before God's people took possession of it. But by the end of the psalm, you see something very different in verse 9. You see the princes of the people gathering as the the people of the God of Abraham. So it's very unexpected. You go from nations being submitted forcefully to nations who willingly submit themselves to God. And how does that work? How is that possible? There are other places in the Bible that make similar promises. Again, from Isaiah chapter 60 this time. Nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Were the well-known words of Psalm 87, foreigners will belong in Jerusalem. And that theme of belonging comes back in this psalm as well. So the scope of the psalm is much bigger than just the political nation of Israel. It's telling us that ultimately God's people are gathered from all over the world. We saw earlier that Psalm 47 is a psalm about God going up, and we saw that going up means going up to dwell among his people in Jerusalem. And ultimately that was fulfilled in Christ. He, he went up to Jerusalem as well, but he went up and he was lifted up to be, to be crucified. And yet that death was the ultimate manifestation of God's grace. In Through his death and through his resurrection, he obtained salvation for his people. And he promised that after his ascension, he would send them the Holy Spirit. He said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the Holy Spirit is the means by which the Lord rules in the hearts of his people today. It's through his spirit that we submit Willingly to his rule. And then you end up with Lord's Day 48. The second petition. What do you, What is the second petition? Your kingdom come. That means so rule us by your word and spirit that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the works of the devil. Every power that raises itself against you. Every conspiracy against your holy word. Do this until the fullness of your kingdom comes wherein you shall be all in all. We can make that confession because God rules in our hearts. So God has submitted the hearts of his people. And that's an act of grace. Christ came because of grace. He came out of love. He came to submit his people to reestablish the rule of God over their lives. And that rule is worldwide. It chooses people from all over the world and continues to call them today. So the scope of Psalm 47 is far too grand to be contained merely within the pages of the Old Testament. It gives us a glimpse of grandeur which surpasses its limitations. That's where the grandeur begins, but that's not where it ends. That's why it says the princes of the peoples gather as a people of the God of Abraham. The princes of the peoples, the heathen peoples, gather as the peoples of the God of Abraham. Because they belong. Because we all belong. Because God calls all people without distinction. All nations are called to join in praising him. Psalm 47 looks forward to the day when God's supremacy and God's grace will be all that you see. In Revelation 11, verse 15, anticipates that day when it says, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. The day, that day, when his supremacy and his grace will be revealed for the whole universe to see, and then the dwelling of God will be with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. God has gone up. That is why his people praise him. That's why we need this psalm. It's a reminder to us not to forget, not to lose focus, but to remember whom we serve, the most high, to be feared, a great king among all the earth. And he is more gracious than you could ever imagine. He's gone up. So let us praise him for his supremacy and praise him for his grace. Amen.